All right, friends. Well, God uses so many images in the Old Testament to communicate significant truths to his people. Passover, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Booths, the Rite of Circumcision, the Sacrificial System of Offerings, the Tabernacle, and later the Temple. There's a multitude of images that God uses to help us to understand his truth better. But now in the New Testament economy, now that we are entered into the New Covenant, there are really only two images that God specifically uses in that way. Those images are communion and baptism. And since there are only two of them, they must be very significant. And yes, they are very significant images because they represent two critical truths. Communion declares that Jesus is the perfect sacrifice who offered his body and his blood to pay for the sins of his people. Baptism declares that those who trust in Jesus are now united with Jesus and are united with his church. They have a new family in the church of God. And so we speak about Lord's Supper pretty regularly. We, we have the chance to talk about that each first Sunday of the month, but we don't get as many opportunities to talk about the significance and the meaning of the sacrament of baptism. So let us take time to consider the scripture's teaching on this important sacrament today. We will look at baptism through the lens of the scripture this morning, taking time to examine three of its most beautiful facets. We're going to look at baptism's example to us in scripture. We're going to look at baptism's imagery, and we're going to look at baptism's function. What does it actually accomplish in the life of the believer? We're going to begin with baptism's example, and in seeking to understand what baptism is all about, we need to turn our attention to God's word. For in its pages, we're going to find a number of excellent examples of baptisms that are going to help us gain a clearer picture of baptism's meaning, of how we should understand this holy sacrament. It would be, of course, fitting for us to begin with a very special baptism, the baptism of Jesus Christ himself. Each of the four books that are dedicated to recording the history of Jesus' time here on earth find this event important enough that they dedicate space to recording it. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all share information about this important example of baptism. Before Jesus began his public ministry, John the Baptist was stirring up the hearts of the Israelites, God's chosen people. He was speaking with the authority of a prophet. He was challenging Israel to see the severity of their sin against God. In order to acknowledge their need for God's forgiveness, John's preaching challenged his fellow Israelites to publicly repent of their sin. To repent is to acknowledge the gravity of sin, to see how serious it is, and then to knowingly and willingly turn away from that sin, to determine not to continue to walk in the direction that turns away from the Lord God. And so John was imploring the Jewish people. He was saying, repent of your sin. Confess these things openly. Israel has not been dedicated to their God. They have not been faithful to the worship of the one true Savior. And then in conjunction with that public confession, John was saying, show us that you are repentant through baptism. And why did he call them to be baptized? Because baptism was a symbolic acknowledgement that God alone has the power to wash away their sins. That was the baptism that John preached. The baptism we're going to be conducting today is slightly different than that. It is an advancement on that initial baptism. Historically, baptism had been in practice for some time. People who were not Jewish by birth, 
but who had heard about Yahweh, the one true God, or had read about him, or had been exposed to believers and were very struck by the way that they lived their lives in dedication to the Creator, might at times convert and become Jewish. They might begin to follow in the steps of Judaism. The process by which they came to be identified with Judaism was threefold. These converts or proselytes to Judaism would have to go through milach. In the Hebrew, this means circumcision. The males who believed would have to take upon themselves this physical mark of belonging to the covenant of Moses. Secondly, there was tabula, and tubula was immersion in water. So somebody who had become Jewish, who was not yet Jewish before, who perhaps they were born a Gentile, but desired to be identified with the nation of Israel, would go, undergo circumcision, and they would come forward and go through a process of baptism, which was symbolically showing them that God needed to wash their sins away. The third process uh, of, of uh, converting to Judaism was called Corban. And Corban was an animal sacrifice that was offered on behalf of the sins that that individual had committed. It wasn't just for their sin nature. It was for the actual acts of sin that they had committed against God. So baptism was not originally intended for ethnic Israelites. It was for converts. So when John the Baptist called his Jewish countrymen to come and to be baptized publicly, he was signifying that their birthright to Abraham did not make them clean. The fact that they were ethnically Jewish did not mean that they were exempt from the justices of God. This was a humbling thing for him to demand to them. And so many of them chose not to participate. They would say, I don't need to be baptized. I'm Jewish. I already belong to the Lord God. They refused to see that their sinfulness had separated them from Yahweh. And yet many listened to the preaching of John and were convicted by it. Many obeyed his command and came to be baptized in the waters of the Jordan River. Among them, interestingly, was Jesus himself. We see in Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. I will read this out loud for you. It will also be on the screen. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Would you take a moment with you, with me? I, I know that as we open up God's word together, we seek to understand its truth. And there's a lot of varying opinions on, on baptism and on other topics in scripture. So we must be diligent to ask that the Lord would give us strength and understanding that his Holy Spirit would help us to discern the truths that he has for us. So let's just take a moment and ask that he would do that even right now. Almighty God, you are good to us, and we understand the limitations of human wisdom. We know that if we approach you apart from the work of your Holy Spirit, then we will not be able to understand these scriptures that you have laid before us today. But we have full confidence and faith that those who seek you will find you. So please use your Holy Spirit to enlighten us, to open our eyes, and to bring us to the grace we need to see in these words. Help us to interpret the understanding of baptism correctly, and help us to live in the truths that baptism symbolize. We thank you for all these things, God, in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.
Let's make some observations from our text. When Jesus came asking to be baptized, there was confusion on the part of John the Baptist. Jesus was not like John. Jesus was not like any of us. Well, in many ways, he was just like us. Jesus had taken on flesh. He had left the security of heaven to come down and be born of a virgin, of Mary. He grew up as a little baby into a small child, then eventually into a man. He had to face the same serious challenges that you and I face. He had to, to eat. He was hungry from time to time. He had to sleep. He, grow, he grew weary at points. He probably had to battle with sickness. He had to grow in wisdom and stature. So in many ways, he was just like you and me. But he was different in one very distinct and important way. Jesus never broke the covenant of God. He never sinned against the Father. And John the Baptist knew that. John knew that Jesus was the Messiah that God had promised for so many generations. And so John, when Jesus comes to be baptized by him, sees no reason for it. He knows that Jesus doesn't need to have his sins washed away because he has no sin. When John hesitates to baptize Jesus, Jesus explains the request by declaring, thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. We will talk about that more in a moment, but notice here that the very practice that Jesus would require his disciples to participate in, this practice of baptism, Jesus participated in it himself. And in doing so, he personally set an example for us to follow. When a believer comes before God and before many witnesses in the public sacrament of baptism, which our brother Donald's going to do in just a few moments, he or she is following in the footsteps an example of their Savior, the Savior Jesus Christ. In Matthew 3, we see some important and unique things take place here. The Holy Spirit, when Jesus comes out of the water, descends upon Jesus like a dove. And the voice of God the Father declares from the heavens, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So we have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all present in one place at one time. This picture of the Trinity points to the fact that all three members of the Godhead will be involved in our salvation. In fact, the only way we can baptize in obedience to Scripture is in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Some people get the mistaken thought that Jesus is the only one who is involved with our saving, but God, the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, all contribute in some way to our redemption and reconciliation to him. So Jesus was baptized as an example to us, and along with him, many other believers, both men and women, were baptized in the Jordan River. If we were to take the time to examine every mention of John's baptism in Scripture— in Matthew 3, Mark chapter 1, and John 1 and 3, and in Luke 3, we would see some patterns begin to emerge. First of all, we would see who is not baptized in those examples. The example is recorded consistently in all four gospels. John does not tell the people of Israel that they are to bring their babies out to the waters of the Jordan for him to baptize them. Now, it's a very common practice, not only in Roman Catholic churches, but also in some Protestant churches, such as Lutheran and Presbyterian churches, to baptize infants as a way of identifying them with God's church. Many of you who were raised in those traditions might have been baptized by your parents or guardians before you were too young to even realize what was happening. 
Now, there is room for discussion on this matter. We don't consider this a primary issue. This is a matter of secondary importance. So we do believe that there are room. Uh, there's room for faithful brothers and sisters in Christ to disagree on this matter. But we're going to talk about uh, this idea of infant baptism a little bit more in detail in a few moments. The explicit example that we see, however, over and over again, first in the baptisms of John performed in uh, the Gospels, and then later in the book of Acts in the early church, they all show individuals who are responsible for themselves, responding to the preaching of God's word, coming forward voluntarily to be baptized. Here's another example that we see. All who were baptized were baptized one time. They were baptized once. This is, is not like the sacrament of communion, is it? Communion is supposed to happen regularly. Jesus says, and you should partake of this cup and of, of this bread until I return. So we're to continue to partake of this cup. It reminds us again, again and again of the sacrifice that Christ made to bring us near to him. But baptism points to a new beginning. While communion connects the power by which we can walk in this new way of life, baptism isn't something we do when we've fallen away or had some rough time and not really paid attention to the Lord. Baptism is something that we do once and for all to identify ourselves with God and with his people. And that baptism should be a continual reminder of who we have declared to the world that we have come to be thanks to Jesus. Every baptism that we see in the New Testament is by immersion in water. Now, if you've ever stepped foot into a Baptist church, the chances are pretty good that you've heard somebody say, well, in the original Greek, the word was baptizo, and that word means literally to immerse in water, and that is definitely the case. The word baptize is an English transliteration of that Greek word. In other words, we could have just said immerse every time you see baptize in the scriptures, and it would have been a proper translation, but instead, they decided to take the Greek word and make a new word out of it. So you only really hear the word baptized used, usually in the context of religious discussions. And I think in some ways that's confusing people uh, because there are several modes with which people are baptized today now because we have lost sight of the fact that baptism was originally by immersion. Sometimes you'll see someone sprinkled with water and it's called baptism. Sometimes you'll see water poured on the head of an individual from a pitcher and that's called baptism. But if we want to strictly follow the example of Scripture, then baptism should be done by immersion. It means to submerge somebody into waters. And that is why it says that John the Baptist went out into the wilderness where there was much water so that he could baptize. That's why it said that Jesus came up out of the waters because he had been submerged in them. We don't sprinkle water in our practice of baptism because we don't see that recorded in Scripture. We don't pour water over the head of someone who's ready to come forward in obedience to Scripture because we don't see that pattern in Scripture. We immerse people in water. And it's what John the Baptist was doing, and it's what Jesus' disciples would continue doing after John. The mode of baptism, immersion rather than sprinkling or pouring water over an individual, increases in significance as you consider the symbolic imagery. Of baptism. So let's move into this section, second section where we consider the imagery of baptism. God likes to teach us through symbols and imagery. So many of the important truths that God communicates to us have a corresponding object lesson that makes it possible to understand and relate to that truth in a way that is easier for us to connect to. And so let me give you an example of that. In the Old Testament, when someone was speaking of sin, they would often refer to yeast and how yeast 
is mixed in with a giant lump of dough to make a bread, a loaf of bread, rise. A little bit of yeast can impact a huge loaf of, of dough. And so often the Hebrews in the Old Testament would point to that object lesson and say that is symbolic. Yeast is therefore symbolic of sin so that we would recognize that it only takes a little bit of sin to infect our lives, to, to have a pervasive effect on all that we do. This baptism is not just a sign, but it is also a symbol, like the yeast is a symbol of sin. Signs point to something, but they don't necessarily have a similarity to the thing that they point to. Why does a green light mean go? Because somebody a long time ago said, let's just make green be the symbol for go. Most of the fast cars on the road that are going quickly are red, right? But red means stop because these signs are arbitrary. As long as everybody knows the, the rules that we're playing by, there's no confusion. But those signs don't have a real symbolic connection to the thing they're communicating. Symbols carry a similarity to the thing they represent. A symbol points to something in a representative way. And so in the Old Testament, here's an example. Sheep and goats and bulls were offered as sacrifices not because they could literally pay for our sins, but because the death of the animal illustrated in a heavy and vivid way that the debt of sin could only be paid for with life. So that's not just a sign. That's a symbol as well. The death of those animals made us realize that if we don't have forgiveness of sins, then we too will have to suffer death and separation from God forever. Baptism is more than just a sign. It is a symbol itself. So going down under the water is a visual depiction of our old way of life, our sinful rebellion being buried and laid to rest, and then our souls being resurrected again by the only power that can bring life from death, the power of God's grace. In the sacrament of baptism, God is illustrating to us a vivid reality. The physical object lesson of baptism is that of a funeral service. When one is put under the waters of baptism and then raised up out of it, it is meant to be a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of their souls. Their old life is being laid to rest forever. That rebelliousness to God, that obstinance to him is being put to death and buried. And then as that individual comes out of the water, symbolically, we are showing the world what Christ has done for them, that he has given them new life, that they are born again in him. And we get a really amazing picture of this <clears throat> in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 4. So let me read that to you. The apostle Paul writes, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Do you understand what Paul is saying there? He's not saying that your physical body is laying in a grave somewhere with Jesus' physical body. That wouldn't make any sense at all. He's saying that in a symbolic and spiritual way, your old self is now buried along with Christ when he was buried. But just so as Christ was raised from the dead, those who have been baptized are symbolically united to his resurrection. 
There is a promise that we too will have an eternal body given to us that will replace this temporary body that is vulnerable and that falls apart and it gets sore and it gets injured and gets sick. It illustrates what Jesus did for us. Baptism is a picture of death, burial, and resurrection. And it does this in two ways. First of all, it illustrates what Jesus did. That is why when John hesitated to baptize Jesus, Jesus told John it is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. If Jesus had not been crucified, if he was not buried, if he did not rise again, then we would have no means for our sins to be forgiven. See, this God that we come to worship today is a God of incredible love, but he is also a God of great justice. And in order to be a a just and righteous God, God cannot just pretend like our sins did not happen. He must take care of our sins somehow in some way. God must punish them. God loves what is good and holy and righteous, but God hates what is wicked. God hates what is destructive. And so he must punish our sins. And he did that through the only worthy sacrifice there is, through Jesus and only Jesus. Luke 12, 49 through 50 says, this is Jesus speaking. He says, I come to cast fire on the earth and would that it were, would it were, would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. This is chapter 12 of Luke. Luke is baptized by John in chapter 3. So he's not saying I need to be baptized by John. He's saying I have a baptism to be baptized with. What is he talking about? He's pointing forward to his literal death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus considers that his true baptism, that he would be laid to rest in a tomb in fulfillment of the prophecies that he had made. Again, Mark 10, 38. This is after John and James come to Jesus and they say, you know what, in your coming kingdom, we would really love to be able to rule with you at your right hand and your left hand. And Jesus, I'm sure, shakes his head. And he says to them in verse 38, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? In other words, he's showing them what he's going to have to do. He's going to have to be killed. He's going to have to endure a terrible execution. He's going to have to experience suffering at the hands of the Romans at the instruction of the Jewish high priests. Jesus' baptism by John didn't wash away sin because he had none. It pointed to Jesus' necessary sacrifice. And so too do our baptisms point to and confess the wonderful death, burial, and resurrection that Jesus was willing to endure for us. Now here's where God may need to stretch our minds a bit. Baptism also illustrates that by faith, we are being united to Jesus in the sense that when Jesus died, the old sinful part of us, the old sinful nature that used to rule us was being put to death as well. That is why Paul says in Romans 6, 4, that we were, ba- uh, that we were buried with him through baptism into death. So baptism is a symbolic representation of our death to the old way of life that we used to walk in. And that old way of life must expire if we are to walk in the new way of life. We cannot keep one foot in the old way of life and put one foot in heaven. God does not allow us to straddle those two realities. We either belong to him fully, heart, mind, soul, and strength, or we don't belong to him at all. 
Baptism is rightly understood to be a public, external expression of an internal change that's going on within our hearts. It is declared out loud, usually at the very beginning of one's journey with Jesus, and it need not be repeated. It is no wonder that Jesus commanded that his disciples be baptized and to baptize those who come to believe. We see in Matthew chapter 18, after Christ has done his faithful work on the cross, after he has defeated the grave, he's preparing his disciples to continue this great work. He only spends a little time with them, about 40 days here on earth, to show them that his resurrection is real, that death has no victory over him. And then right before he leaves earth to ascend into the heavens and take his seat, the rightful place, the right hand of God, he tells them this in chapter 28 of Matthew. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So baptism is not just a sign that points to something. It is also a symbol. It carries pictures of what it represents. It carries pictures of what it points to. But it is also not merely symbolic. It is more than that. It is a means of grace for his church. When we experience the beautiful act of baptism, it makes an impact on our hearts in the here and the now. Our baptism will come to mind when the enemy tempts us and tries to convince us that we don't belong to the Lord God. We can point back to that day and say, no, I gave my life to Christ and I publicly declared that he is my savior. I don't belong to you, Satan. I belong to my savior. It helps us to see that we have a new identity, a new heart, and that God's promises and commandments are written on our hearts now according to this new covenant that was promised to us in Jeremiah 31. It helps you to be accountable to one another. When you come baptized into a church, you are now connected to that church. You now have a responsibility and a stewardship to them and they to you. They are linked to you. Your light is no longer hidden under a bushel, but it is declared without shame along with the resounding voices of your brothers and sisters whom you unite with. Your baptism is an admission that your faith is not simply a personal religion. It's not just your views on God, but that you are saying yes to the one way of salvation that Christ has declared to all the generations. It is by God's will that you are becoming a Christian. And that definition of Christian is not your definition, it is God's definition. So let us conclude by answering the following question. What exactly does baptism accomplish? We need to understand baptism's function if we don't want to be confused. Many make the claim that baptism is the New Testament equivalent to the Old Testament rite of circumcision. And that is not entirely true. Those two functions do share some similarities. But baptism is not the replacement strictly for circumcision. Some believe that Baptism washes away the sins of the one being baptized. If baptism has a regenerating effect, then that would help explain why people insist on baptizing infants, wouldn't it? The Roman Catholic Church teaches that a baby who has not been baptized, who passes away before their baptism, cannot go to heaven because they've not experienced the regeneration that only comes from baptismal waters. 
They dictate that that child goes to someplace else, a place called Limbus Infantitum. And excuse me if I can't show you where that says it in Scripture, because Scripture speaks nowhere of that place. That is something that people who are building doctrines have invented to explain what they think about baptism. According to that teaching, babies who are not baptized don't go to hell, but they go to a place that is peaceful, yet is devoid of the blessings of those who are saved. And and I'll grant to you, there's much that we don't know about what happens to an infant who passes away so early, but we cannot afford to build entire doctrines of the afterlife on conjecture, on uh, hypothesis. Is that what baptism really accomplishes, though? Do the waters of baptism literally wash our sins away and bring our dead souls to life? Or does the blood of Jesus wash our sins away and bring our dead souls to life? Romans 5, 9 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Listen to Ephesians 1, verses 7 through 10. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purposes, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to come, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And if that is not enough, brothers and sisters, consider the words of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13 where the Apostle Paul says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Which time is he talking about? He's talking about how every one of us is born away from God. How not one of us is born in faith, but all of us must turn from our sin and turn toward him. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, You who were once far off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Jesus Christ. Not by the waters of baptism, but by the blood of Jesus Christ. Baptism and circumcision were each sacraments that marked a person's connection to the people of God. They are not exactly the same thing, but they have some important features in common. Let's talk about those for a moment. They both are performed early. In the Jewish tradition, a little baby boy was circumcised on the eighth day of their existence in this world. They didn't waste a lot of time doing it. So too, a Christian who has professed Christ and shows true belief in Jesus should not hesitate and put off baptism, but should seek to be obedient to the Lord as soon as logistically possible. Both mark a new birth, don't they? Circumcision marks a new physical birth into the body of Jewish people. Baptism marks a spiritual birth, that those who were once dead in their sins are now alive in Jesus Christ. Both become a sign of belonging. Those who are baptized in a few minutes should have a real sense of connection to other believers here and a responsibility for the work that is being done in their lives and in their church community. But let us not make the mistake of putting too much emphasis on the external sign that we forget that, they are make, that those external signs are marking an internal spiritual reality that is far more significant. Romans chapter 4, beginning halfway through verse 9, says, For we say that faith was counted to Abraham 
as righteousness. You remember when that happened back in Genesis chapter 15? This man Abraham, who before there was a nation of Israel, trusted the Lord God, trusted in the Creator, and his faith in God was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 10 says, Then how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. In other words, the Apostle Paul's pointing out that circumcision was a symbol and a sign. It wasn't the thing that saved Abraham. He was counted righteous before he was circumcised. Natural progression then goes like this. When God brings sight to the blind, when God brings a person from spiritual death into spiritual life, they can now believe. They could not do so beforehand. Regeneration is God's internal and spiritual work. It is not brought about by our obedient actions in baptism. Baptism, therefore, follows faith in God. It doesn't precede it. It doesn't ignite it. It doesn't catalyze it. It follows and points to the faith that God has put into the heart of a believer. The believer, as a sign of their faith, as a symbol of their new life, is baptized to show that they have trusted the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for their salvation. Then why circumcise children before they can believe? Now, this is where confusion often comes from, and this is where we need to see New Testament baptism as distinctly different from Old Testament circumcision. As you look through the New Testament, as you read it with understanding, you begin to see a trend that the New Testament writers are all moving away from external symbols and into internal realities. So in Jeremiah 31 in the Old Testament, it points forward to the New Covenant. It says that the Old Covenant, the covenant of Moses, was written on stony tablets, right? Those tablets were delivered to the people by Moses. <clears throat> but Jeremiah points forward and says, I'm going to write a new covenant where? On your hearts, on the fleshy tablets of your hearts. External changing to internal. John the Baptist urges Israel not to proudly think that they are saved because of their ethnic heritage, which is physical. It is, it is of little importance compared to our eternal soul. He says, don't think so much about where you were born from or, or the lineage of your genealogy, but think about the faith that you have in, Christ, or in the Lord God. Do you trust him? Do you follow after him because you believe he is your king? External evidence or internal? Which one matters more? the internal evidence. We went through a series uh, a couple years back in Galatians. In the book of Galatians, Paul aims to correct a heresy that was rising up in that early church. People who claimed to be believers were insisting that every Christian needed to be circumcised. If they're going to believe in Jesus, they needed to do what Jesus would have done. They needed to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses. And Paul insists that those external obediences are not what saves a person that their faith in Christ is sufficient. And in fact, if somebody were to be circumcised, then they would be putting themselves under the whole law of Moses that they must keep it perfectly. So we see this trend in the New Testament that things are moving from the external to the internal. And so there is a baptism that replaces circumcision, but it's not the baptismal waters that we're going to talk about today. It's what we call the baptism of the Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit happens in the moment of regeneration. When God changes your heart to faith in him, then you are now immersed 
in the spirit of God. You have become one of his children. You are identified with him, and now forever you belong to the Savior. Old Testament circumcision was a symbol of one's faith, but Abraham was accounted as faithful before he was circumcised. And in the same way, baptism is a sign of true faith, but is not itself a saving action. And I want to give you two examples from Scripture to back this up, because not everybody agrees on these things, right? But look at Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, verses 44 through 48. The apostle Peter has been sharing the gospel with some Gentiles. And it says in verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, Can anything withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days. Now I share this passage with you because the order is very important here. Peter's preaching. And there's some Jewish people around. There's some Gentile people around. The preaching has an impact. The Holy Spirit is moving in the hearts of the people and they start to respond in faith in such a way that the Holy Spirit is clearly upon them. Peter recognizes that these people who have trusted in Jesus all have the Spirit. If you have the Spirit, are you saved? Yes. God's not going to give you the Spirit if you don't have faith in Him. This is an indication that they truly are saved and yet we see clearly that they have not yet been baptized. So does baptize regenerate us or does the Holy Spirit baptism regenerate us? We see here from scripture, friends, that baptism is important. It was commanded and it closely followed after this change of heart that happened by the hand of God. But the baptismal waters are not the things that made it possible for these men and women to have the Holy Spirit. Here's another example. We're going to go to the cross for this one. Jesus has humbly allowed himself to be accused of sins he did not commit. He has not defended himself, but instead realizes that this is God's plan for his life, and he must go to the cross. He's not the only one being crucified today. There's a thief on his right and a thief on his left. One of them is mocking Jesus. The claims that he was the king of the Jews are funny to him. And so he says, if you're truly the king of the Jews, why don't you command your soldiers to come and get us down off of these crosses? Why don't you save us with your power? But the thief on the other side rebukes the first thief. This is what he says. Verse 40 of Luke 23. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. In other words, he's not trying to pretend like he's an innocent man. He knows he's guilty. He's pinned to that cross for a reason, and so is the other thief. But he recognizes that Jesus is holy and has no business being up there. This man has done nothing wrong, he says in verse 41. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then Jesus says something remarkable to the man. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Has this bloody thief, this wretched man who identifies his sin and confesses it openly, has he had a chance to be baptized? Has he had a chance to have the waters wash away his sin? 
He has not. He will breathe his last breath pinned to that cross. But his soul will endure because he's been washed, not by water, but by the blood of Jesus Christ, his Savior. Even though his whole life, perhaps, was lived in rebellion and sin and abject criminal behavior, in the last moments he saw the light, praise God, and he was snatched from the flames of judgment. And Christ says to him, I will see you in paradise today. Baptism's function is not to regenerate the believer, but to declare the regeneration of the believer to the world. John Calvin said, Our faith receives from baptism the advantage of its sure testimony to us that we are not only engrafted into the death of life of Christ, but so united to Christ himself that we become sharers in all of his blessings. Baptism, my friends, is confessional in nature. It is not optional, but also it is not the instrument that saves us. The state into which God saves us is immersion in Jesus. And when you experience baptism, he will use that as a continual blessing in your life as you remember that you are now new, that you are different because of what Christ has wrought in your life. And so the question that we must close with today, is your life immersed in Jesus Christ? Have you recognized the weight of your sin? and the consequences of turning your back on God's command and rule? Have you come to the point where Christ has helped you to repent of your sin, where he has shown you that this sin is serious and there is nothing you can do to erase it from your own ledger? That is one of the wonderful mysteries of, of Scripture, is that we are all sinners, but none of us can do anything about it on our own. And the more we try to do something about it, the more we fall short. And the more we frustrate ourselves because we just fall into sin again. But it is when we give up and turn our lives over to the one redeeming God who has the power to change us, that is when the story changes. That is when we go from death to life. Are you immersed in Christ? Has Christ brought you to your knees yet? If not, I'm so glad that you heard the message that was preached today so that you can take this information home and begin to think about it. And I pray that you will pray, that you will seek the Lord God on your knees, that you will ask him, is this really the truth about baptism? Is this really the truth about my sin? Is there no path to me except through Jesus Christ, your son? And I pray that the Holy Spirit in his work will humble your heart and you like Donnie and like the others who came forward to be baptized today, would bow yourself to this king and realize that he loves you and that his salvation is here to rip you out of the judgment that you have earned for yourself, that he was willing to suffer on your behalf so that you might have a new life to begin today. Let's close in a word of prayer. God, I thank you for your grace and I ask that you would remind us in your scripture, God, that you are the one who deserves all the credit and the glory for the new life you have brought about in those who believe. And I pray that there may be even someone here today that, that is trusting you for the first time. I pray that maybe there's somebody here today who's trusted you for some time but has been stubborn about baptism and didn't realize how important it was. I pray that they would decide today that the next opportunity that they will give themselves over to your waters, Lord. I pray, Father, that as we celebrate and watch Donnie come forward, as we hear his testimony, God, that you would resonate that story in our hearts and that you would help us to understand that all who have come to trust you have been saved in a radical and a wonderful way, a way worthy of your praise. And so I ask, Lord God, that this would be a benefit to our hearts and soul. We lift up all these words.
In the great name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, amen.